Turn your Bibles to the fifth psalm. We've been in a series on the psalms, and this is the last of a series, and uh, we'll start a new series this next Sunday on 2 Timothy, for such a time as this. Martin Luther said, As it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, it is the business of Christians to pray. And this psalm deals with David's determination to pray. He's in trouble. He has many enemies. And he prays against these enemies. And we have enemies. We have many problems that we face in our society. The deterioration of the home, the resulting consequence in society. And a book here... Uh, Revival Signs by Tom Phillips. He just touches on a few of the types of things that you hear in our society. In Dartmouth, Massachusetts, three schoolboys surround a classmate and stab him to death, then laugh and give one another high fives. In Oakland, California, a teenager branding a knife, brandishing a knife, chases a woman down the street while onlookers chant, kill her, kill her. Members of Hamilton Square Baptist Church in San Francisco attending their Sunday evening service, September 19, 1993, are attacked by a radical gay activist. Church is surrounded by more than a hundred rioters who scream and rough up parishioners attempting to enter the church. Uh, when Dr. David Enns begs for police support, the request is denied. He's told, you must understand, now, this is San Francisco. No arrests are made. Well, David decides to get serious about prayer. And uh, he speaks of his petition to the Lord in verses 1 and 2. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. Uh, notice this marked by urgency. Effectual, fervent, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, says James. Now, <clears throat> notice the relationship, the reasons God will hear. He uh, speaks first of his relationship to God. He says, my king, my God, you're my king. Uh, God is a great king, and he is David's king because David has surrendered his will to him. And he's David's God. You remember, in the Old Testament, you made a genuine commitment to God as you came through the blood of the Lamb. God appointed a way in which he could be approached. He said, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You must come in the appointed way. That Lamb, of course, the Lamb's blood couldn't pay for a man's sin, but he could picture a Lamb-like person, the real Lamb. John the Baptist one day pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God. He said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There's the real Lamb. Uh, he was the one who was paying for David's sin, and Abraham's sin, and Moses' sin, and your sin, and my sin. And uh, that was necessary because God is a righteous God, and he cannot overlook sin. I was listening to a tape this week by John Guest, who's been with us before, and uh, he used an illustration out of Use myself, but I 
didn't know the man's name. The man is named Mr. Griffith. Mr. Griffith uh, ran a bridge, he operated a bridge over the Mississippi River. And uh, one Saturday morning, his children went with him. What he would do is raise this bridge when ships were to go through, and he'd lower it when a plane, train was to cross and so on. Uh, he was showing his little children what he did, and he was down on the catwalk showing them machinery, and the phone rang in the area where he was. He picked it up. There's a train ahead of schedule. You need to lower the bridge right away. He, he says to his children, you stay right here. Do not move. He goes up to the section where he has the lever that he throws, and and uh, as he gets ready to throw the lever to lower the bridge, he looks down and he sees his son has crawled into the machinery. He does not have time to go back down and get his son out and lower the bridge in time. He has to make a choice. He throws the lever and uh, saves hundreds of lives of the people on the train, but grinds his little boy to powder. And as the train whizzes by, he sees the people sitting on the train, drinking their coffee, reading their newspapers, absolutely oblivious to what's just happened. And he's killed his son, and he starts weeping, and he bangs on the windows of his compartment there. As he sees him, he says, Don't you know? Don't you know? I just gave my son for you! But they didn't know. Now, they may have found it out later. Well, that's what God says to us. Don't you know? I gave my son for you. I ground my son to powder so I could forgive you. Uh, He undertook to pay for your sins. And on that basis, God offered Abraham and David and Moses forgiveness, and he offers us forgiveness. No other way. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So he is David's God because David has approached him in that way, placed his trust in God's forgiveness through the Lamb. We place our trust in God's offer to forgive us through Jesus Christ and surrender our will. And then he's our God. Now David gives reasons why God should answer. One is his relationship. You're my God. You're my king. And the other is his reliance on God. Uh, that he says, For unto thee will I pray. Uh, Lord, hear my voice, because I'm trusting in you. I'm asking you. I'm relying on you. Uh, Read through the Old Testament. Our reliance on God is the thing that activates God, in a sense. It moves him into play. Over and over and over and throughout the Old Testament, as you read about Israel and Judah... They'll be under attack by enemies, and they will tend not to look to God for help. They will tend to go to Egypt, or they'll tend to go to Assyria, or someone else. And God will say, all right, because you went to Assyria, because you went to Egypt and didn't trust in me, I'm not going to help. But when they would look to him and rely on him, then he would undertake. Read Second Chronicles, chapter 20, where you have the classic case where the Ammonites come against uh, Israel, or against Judah, and... Uh, the king, Jehoshaphat, this is a great army that's come against him, and he just turns to the Lord. Uh, he called the people together. It says, Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. 
And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven, and rulest thou not over all the kingdoms of the heathen? In thy hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Are thou not our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham? Now behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Edom, uh, that you would not let us invade, they have come against us. Uh, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do. Our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord, and their little ones, their wives, and their children. What a scene. And then, upon Jahaziel, the son of Zechariah, and so on, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Because they relied on him, God undertook and gave them a great deliverance. Now David says, God, you will answer because you are my God and because I'm relying on you. Now, uh, you have the petition of, to the Lord, then you have the resolution to get serious about prayer. In verse 3, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Uh, notice that resolution. He's making some commitments about prayer, what he's going to do in the future. Not just because he's in an emergency here, but something he's going to do regularly. Uh, why is it that uh, most of us don't pray as we should? Most, most of us would be quick to say, I don't pray like I should. Why is it that we don't? Isn't it because we don't really build it into our schedule? We don't plan to do it. We mean to do it, but we don't plan to do it. We don't carve it out. David's determined he's going to carve it out. Uh, you know, uh, you have to allocate the time and mark it off and not let anything else interfere or it doesn't happen. Edith Schaefer, uh, she and Francis Schaefer, when they started uh, Labrie over in Switzerland, in her book on prayer, she says they had so many problems. They decided, we've got to mark off time for prayer. And so they just took Monday and they said, here's a room. Everybody's going to pray for an hour. We're going to succeed one another. You go in there, you pray for an hour, and then somebody else will come in and so on. And each person prayed until the next person came. And they just marked off Mondays that they were going to do that. And things still didn't get a whole lot better. And so they said, well, we need a day of prayer and fasting. And they marked off another day. They would fast all day. Uh, they were brought to that when they read where Ezra declared, uh, had a fast. Ezra 8.21. When Ezra is going back and he's got uh, money and resources from the Jews who've been in Persia. They went into captivity in Babylon, then the Persians conquered Babylon, and now they're being released to go back. But it's a very dangerous journey. And yet he has told the king of Persia about how their God is the true God who will watch over them. And so he's ashamed to ask soldiers to guard them. What's he do? Well, he, he declares a fast to those who are with him. It says, Then by the Ahava 
canal. I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us and our children. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and He answered our prayer. Well, Francis Schaeffer read that, and he said, that's what we've got to do. And they marked off a day to do that. Now, David does something like that, and his is going to do this regularly. He says, this is just brought to my attention the fact that I've got to start getting serious about prayer, Lord. And my voice shall you hear in the morning. Now, over in the 57th Psalm, verse 17, David says, Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. The word here where he says... Uh, that he will direct his prayer unto him. The idea is, I'll order these things before you. In the Hebrew, it's, uh, I will, I will lay my request out in an orderly fashion, in a strenuous petition. And he says, I will look up. I will watch expectantly for an answer. Now, uh, we need to get serious about prayer. Reading a, a book by uh, Becky Tirabasi, or an article, Challenged to Change. And she tells about being on Youth for Christ staff and going to a Youth for Christ conference for staff, and she's pretty burned out uh, spiritually. And one of the speakers got up and talked about marking out time for prayer, getting serious about prayer. And as she listened, she realized that... Uh, well, he, he based it on James chapter 4, where... Uh, James says, well, you have not because you ask not. And she said, is that, does it say that? And she looked it up. You have not because you ask not. She said, I'm going to ask. And she said, she says, uh, without premeditation, I made a decision in front of God and another person to pray for an hour a day for the rest of my life. Wow. That's quite a decision. And she began to practice that. And it was rough going at first, but she said the change uh, has been amazing, the difference it's made. E.M. Bounds, uh, who's an old classic writer on prayer, Purpose in Prayer, many, many other books, uh, he says, God's promises lie like giant corpses without life. God's promises lie like giant corpses without life unless men appropriate these promises by earnest prevailing prayer. God's made us a lot of promises that are just like giant corpses if we don't appropriate them individually and collectively as a family, as a church. Uh, Reading about a businessman, this was written up in... Uh, Guidepost magazines, uh, a fellow by the name of George Shin, tells about, uh, as a young man, he was working his way through business college as a janitor. A couple of young ladies came in to ask him about the business college, and he gave them such a good report on it that they, they signed up and told the registrar that it was because of the janitor that they decided to come. Well, they called him in and said, hey, you keep doing that. And uh, first thing you know, they, when he finished, they offered him a job as a recruiter for the business college, and then they made him a partner. Well, he wanted to uh, buy the business. And actually, there were several different business colleges that the owners had. 
And uh, they said they wanted to get out of it. Would he be interested in buying it? He said yes. So he bought the business only to discover that they were, they were deeply in debt. They hadn't told him. There were many thousands of dollars of unpaid bills, and he had no way of meeting the debts. He meets with lawyers, and uh, they said, uh, you just need to bankrupt. Walking out of the meeting, one of the lawyers kind of put his arm around him and said, why don't you just go to work for someone else? You don't have a prayer. You don't have a prayer. Well, he was driving home, and he got to thinking about that. You don't have a prayer. And he thought, well, I do have a prayer. I can pray. And uh, he hadn't really been serious about prayer. But uh, he stopped the car on the road, and he said, I prayed, Lord, you know what a mess I'm in. Everyone says I'm sunk. I don't believe you feel that way. Help me, Lord. I'm turning the company over to you. You do the guiding, I'll do the work. And anything that comes to me, Lord, I'll share with you. A great sense of relief shot through me, he says. I felt as though I'd just been lifted out of a nightmare. I still had my problems and I had no money. But it seemed a huge burden had been lifted. Said the first night I had a good night's sleep. Next morning, Joe woke up and said, Good morning, Lord. Went to the office. Phone rang and the secretary answered said, It's one of your creditors. You want to talk to him or not? He said, Yeah. Guy said, When are you going to pay my bill? Said, I'll send you a check today. Said, All right. Send him a dollar. That was all he had. Guy called him up a couple of days later and said, uh, I got your check. It must be some mistake. As for a dollar. You trying to be cute? And no, that's all I had. Well, what are you saying? He said, well, I'm going to pay that bill, but I'm going to have to just send you week by week whatever I've got. Are you willing to let me do that? So I said, for the time being, next week he sent him seven dollars. And things began to pick up. Now, one day at his staff meeting, he said, let's open the meeting in prayer. And uh, everybody looks around kind of puzzled, but he opens in prayer. And uh, he says, uh, uh, This was the turn in the road for us as a company and as individuals, a turn to the Lord. The answers started coming, sometimes even popping into my mind in the middle of the night. We began to reorganize the school, expand curriculum, increase facilities, try new ideas. Enrollment grew to over 5,000 students. New roles, new schools were added to our chain of colleges. As our expertise increased, other schools throughout the country started coming to us for consultation services. Today, the once nearly bankrupt organization has a staff of over 800 and serves as a management consultant to colleges in over 28 states. You don't have a prayer. Well, you do have a prayer. You'd be amazed what God does when we get serious about prayer. Tony Campolo, who's spoken for young business leaders and others, and on occasion he was asked to speak at a Pentecostal college near Eastern College where he's on the faculty. And he said, I love to do that. It's a joyous occasion. And he went to speak at the chapel program, and there were eight fellows there who wanted to pray with him before he spoke. And so they went back in the back room, and they knelt, and they all put their hands on his head, and he said, they prayed on and on and said, Eight men leaning on your head <clears throat> gets kind of old after a while. And he said, uh, One fellow prayed, and instead of praying for me, he prayed for somebody else. Charlie Stolfus. 
Dear Lord, he shouted. You know Charlie Stolfus. He lives in that trailer, silver trailer, down the road about a mile. You know the trailer, Lord. Just down the road on the right-hand side. I felt like saying, knock it off, fellow. What do you think God's saying? What's the address again? Uh, anyway, he went on and on and on. Lord Charlie told me this morning that he decided to leave his wife and his three kids. He told me he's walking out on his family. Lord, step in. Do something. Bring the people in that family back together again. Says all the time I'm kneeling there with eight guys leaning on my head. I'm asking myself, when's this guy going to stop? <laughs> uh, he speaks at the chapel and gets in his car to drive back to his college. And he's driving. He sees this hitchhiker. He picks him up. He introduces himself. Says, I'm Tony Campolo. And the guy says, I'm Charlie Stolfus. <laughs> he turns the car around and starts heading back. The fellow says, where are you going? He says, I'm taking you to that trailer down there where you live. You just left your wife, didn't you? He said, who told you? He said, God told me. <laughs> so they got to the trailer and walked in, and he talked to them real straight and led them both to Christ. And today, Charlie Stolfus is a minister. Well, uh, prayer. God answers prayer. God answers that in a little unusual way, but God answers prayer. Uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, God's doing some remarkable things in our country today. I... Those bad things that I read about at the start, about the man chasing the woman with the knife and all those, are from a book entitled Revival Signs. Uh, Join the New Spiritual Awakening. Sure, there are bad things happening in our country and around the world, but there's some amazing things happening. Promise keepers. These guys went to Atlanta where there's 68,000 men gathered for a couple of days to sing praises to the Lord, to hear preaching. Uh, That's just one of 13 groups around the country with that kind of attendance. All that's happened in about four years. Anything like that happened before? I'm not aware of it. Not in our generation. Ah. some unusual things happening. Here's a book by uh, by David Bryant, uh, who's been with us. Uh, the Hope at Hand, National and World Revival. Uh, and David uh, talks about signs of revival beginning to crop up around our country. At the local church level, thousands of pastors are currently gathering in hundreds of four-day prayer sum- summits and where they give themselves to prayer only, to seek God for spiritual awakening in their own lives and communities and returning to call their churches to follow their example. Uh, Even as I write, plans are underway to bring together 75,000 pastors to pray over the nation and to return to mobilize congregation and citywide prayer thrusts for revival. It's going to be in Atlanta here before long. Um, It says, recall... Dr. J. Edwin Orr's principal, who's written a lot about revival and has an excellent film that we've shown on prayer and revival. Recall once more Dr. Orr's principal. Whenever God is ready to begin something new with his people, he always set the, sets them to praying. Hmm. Uh, last uh, 
December, early December, Dr. Bill Bright with a number of others called uh, leaders around the country, Christian leaders together, for three days of fasting and prayer down in Orlando. I went, and, and all we did was uh, pray in small groups, and we'd have an occasional brief speaker, but for three days we just prayed. That came out of a 40-day period of fasting and prayer by Dr. Bill Bright, in which he felt God was telling him to do this and that God is going to do something unique. And he's called another one for this November in California that will be much larger. There were several hundred, three, four hundred at that one. And uh, something's happening. Well, <clears throat> David has a conviction of why God will help in uh, verse 4. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Um, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing or deceitful. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Here's God's opposition to the wicked. Uh, Notice the relation between holiness and being heard here. No wicked man can hope to be heard or helped. Now, wickedness in Scripture is... Is a person who may be morally a pretty good person by worldly standards, but he never really surrendered his will to Jesus Christ or placed his trust in him. He's in rebellion against God, and uh, he's called wicked in that sense. And God hates all workers of iniquity. Now, he loves them. He desires their salvation. At the same time, his anger burns against them. And he will destroy them if they do not turn. But God's openness to those who fear him, in verse 7. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear, I will worship toward thy holy temple. Uh, Notice the contrast, but as for me. Uh, He is opposed to evil and he knows God's attitude is different toward him. He believes God will help. He trusts in God's mercy. He will come into his presence and be received um, and uh, have true fellowship with God. And he prays for God's leading and the leveling or making his straight path. He says in verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. Uh, God uh, sometimes leads us by not answering our prayers. Edith Schaefer says that she prayed earnestly that her husband would not leave his pastorate in St. Louis and go to Europe uh, with this foreign mission association that was asking him to go over there and uh, and, uh, do work over there when he established Labrie. She prayed earnestly that he wouldn't go, but he did go. And she says, everything that has happened since is a reality because of that unanswered prayer. Sometimes God leads us by not answering a prayer that we prayed because we don't know how to pray as we ought often. Well, you have the David's imprecation, his calling down of curses on his and God's enemies. In uh, verse 10, he says, Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. Notice, uh, he is intolerant of evil. God is intolerant of evil. Ours is a day of tolerance of evil. God's not tolerant of evil. 
And uh, this is not so much David's personal opposition as they have rebelled against thee, but the exclusion of those who walk with him from such curses. He says, verse 11, But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in them, for thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. The righteous the man who is reckoned righteous by God through faith in the blood and uh, of the Lamb of the blood of Christ, and who is now walking with him. <clears throat> Uh, then, he says, uh, those can shout for joy. Let them rejoice, because you will bless him. You'll compass him about as with a shield. Well, we see the psalmist's resolution of what to do in his situation. Pray earnestly. Let's examine ourselves. How are we doing in that area? Are we serious about prayer? What's your practice, personally? Is, is prayer a real part of your life? Is it, you spend time, you marked off time. Is it something you mean to do but don't get around to doing very much? Do you only pray when a real crisis comes along? Uh, what is your practice of prayer? Uh, let, me, let me challenge all of us to let's adopt David's resolution. Lord, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning. Let's just say, I'm going to make that commitment. I'm going to get serious about prayer. Lord, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning. And mark off time. And uh, uh, really uh, carve it out. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish, I didn't have time to pray. Trouble just tumbled about me, and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I woke up early this morning... I paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish, I had to take time to pray. Uh, use the little prayer calendar in your bulletin to pray for our missionaries. It's part of that time. You know, I'd meet a missionary and he'd say, I really want to thank you for praying for me when the cannibals were about to eat me, and you were home praying, and they let me go. Man, I didn't know the cannibals were about to eat him. I hadn't thought about it. And I didn't want to say, well, it was somebody else. It wasn't me. And I didn't want to say, yeah, I really prayed. It was awful. Well, now we've got that calendar, and it tells us who to pray for on what day. So I just say, well, were you being eaten by the cannibals on the 22nd day of August? <laughs> uh, use that daily calendar. Start uh, participating in uh, one of our prayer groups. We've got early morning prayer groups. We've got Sunday afternoon ladies' prayer groups. We've got... Uh, these small groups that incorporate prayer into that. We've got Saturday morning men's breakfasts. I invite every man here to my home for breakfast Saturday morning. All you got to do is come with an appetite and pray. Come quietly. My neighbor across the street, he doesn't like that, but come, come, <laughs> uh, and pray for the neighbor. <clears throat> okay, and uh, 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 let me uh, uh, <clears throat> challenge us to get serious. We have prayer retreats, and let's take advantage of these. Prayer conferences where we train and pray for individuals to come to Christ. In your office, in your family, in your neighborhood, pray for individuals to come to Christ. And let's pray for revival. God, move in our country, move in our city, move in our church. God, revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee. Of course, you may be here and you... 
You're like those sitting on the train, kind of oblivious to the fact of God's Son having been ground to powder for you. God's pounding on the windows of heaven saying, Don't you know I gave my Son? That's the starting place if you've never really committed your life to Him. To open your life to Him. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, what is your practice of prayer? What changes do you need to make to get serious about prayer? What would God have you to do? Uh, you want a group? Uh, carve out time in the morning or some other time during the day? Have you, if you've never committed your life to Christ, that's the starting point. Open your heart to Him. Pray like this, Lord Jesus I've been sitting on the train, oblivious to your gift of your Son, but I, I want to turn and surrender to Him and trust Him as my Savior. Amen.